Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS, that's the number four, or Communities for Just Schools, again, the number four. Welcome to this episode of Schoolhouse. We are joined today by author, lawyer, activist, Deepa Iyer, who also has written a book, We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. We're also talking with Fahad Ahmed, Executive Director of DRUM, South Asian Organizing Center, a multi-generational membership-led organization of low-wage South Asian immigrant workers and youth in New York City. DRUM is also a Communities for Just Schools Fund community partner. Welcome, Deepa and Fahad. Thank you both for talking with us today. Thank you. You are both critical leaders in movements that are demonstrating and building solidarity between Black communities and Muslim, Arab, Sikh, and South Asian communities. Deepa, I want to start with you. Why has that been so important for you? Well, I think at the most basic level, it's important to recognize and acknowledge that we are all in this together. And you talked a little bit about the book that I had written. And part of the reason I wrote the book is because I had spent about 10 years at a nonprofit called South Asian Americans Leading Together, a national nonprofit that was formed in the wake of the September 11th attacks to deal with the backlash against Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh American communities and recognized that we were doing a lot of work within our communities, but what was missing really was the ability to talk to Black, Latino, Indigenous, other communities about some of the issues that we were facing and to figure out solutions. So I write in my book about how the phenomena of racial anxiety, of Islamophobia, and of anti-immigrant sentiment have really all come together. And on the front lines have been, in many cases, Muslim, Arab, South Asian communities over the last 15 years. We're about to mark the 15-year anniversary of 9-11. So why should we come together? Because these issues manifest in very similar and different ways. So if you think about, for example, one particular issues such as the criminalization of people of color and immigrants by law enforcement, we know, for example, that uh, law enforcement conducts what's called stop and frisks of Black and Latino youth at Mm -hmm. disproportionate rates. But law enforcement is also, especially in places like New York City, engaging in surveillance activities of South Asian, Arab, and Muslim communities Mm -hmm. when they're playing cricket matches or when they're dining at restaurants or when they're praying at mosques, for example. So in many ways, these issues are similar because there's similar language, similar messaging, similar resources that are being used by law enforcement to conduct criminalization of all of our communities. So I think it's important that we find common cause to deal with these issues and not silo ourselves, either on an issue basis or on a constituency basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Fahad, you really live that in your work as well, and you are... And the work that DRUM does, you are really instrumental at at really pulling out those commonalities, especially in school buildings and the school environment. So I wonder if you would just share with us a little bit about your work and the importance of building solidarity. You know, for DRUM, movement building and solidarity building has been a critical component 
of our work and our orientation to the work, even from its founding. Uh, you know, from uh, even the name of drum being drawn from the original drum, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which was an organization of black labor workers in the Detroit area who were excluded from the white union. And then it was very much a thinking that, one, that we draw upon the legacies of struggles that have gone before us and the communities that have been struggling for a long time, and that our struggle is interlinked with theirs and builds upon theirs. And then secondly, I think as Deepa put it, that our communities have to work together to really understand how the system operates, to be able to challenge it, and to be able to bring about positive change in a way that is inclusive of all of our communities. On one hand, you know, there's sort of um, the way that Deepa framed it, that there's commonalities across our communities. So in our membership, we do have South Asian youth or Indo-Caribbean youth who have been targeted by the school-to-prison pipeline, by the discipline policies, by the constant underfunding of our educational systems. Mm-hmm. In that way, we do find commonality with Black and Latino communities. Because we bring the systemic approach, we also sort of see where some of the differences are and, and how those can be divisive across our communities. Yeah. So one of the issues is that, you know, while Black and Latino communities bear the largest brunt of the school-to-prison pipeline, mm-hmm. for many of our youth, uh, the issue of bullying happens to be a much more relevant and salient issue, particularly post-9-11 incidents of bullying, of the targeting of students for being Muslim, for being South Asian, Sikh, is pretty common. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we consistently kept finding was that a lot of the advocacy efforts in response to the bullying were actually demanding more zero-tolerance policies yeah. for bullying, which, uh, you know, really furthers the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And anytime we ask for intervention of zero-tolerance, uh, you know, those policies, those practices are disproportionately inflicted upon other communities of color, other marginalized communities uh, who are already struggling against the school prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And so there's this what would seem to be a contradiction that our communities are impacted in a way in which the, the demand often becomes something that furthers the school prison pipeline, which is uh, at the expense of black and Latino communities. Yeah. And so our work is around how do we undo those contradictions? And so many of our youth have been leading the work around pushing for restorative justice solutions to issues of bullying, you know, sharing their experiences of what happened when a student ably was removed, only to come back a week later and just being more angry and even more agitated. But we are also now developing our youth are leading and developing a framework around what are sort of the root causes of bullying and really looking at the systemic nature of our educational system. Yes. And so how does things that get included in the curriculum or get excluded from the curriculum perpetrate bullying? Uh, what about the bullying that happens from security officers, from teachers, from administrators? Mm-hmm. How does that set the stage for students to engage in interest-student bullying? So it's really trying to figure out how do we understand uh, how our communities are impacted by the same system in different ways, and then how do we formulate solutions that benefit all of our communities. You talked about restorative justice and using restorative justice as a tool for really keeping young people engaged in their learning environment and in their educational experience. Talk a little bit more about what is restorative justice. Restorative justice, you know, it's kind of a broadly used term, but they are a set of practices 
which try to resolve conflicts or harm that has been done by further engagement rather than by punitive measures. So punitive measures would be suspending students, would be pushing students out, expelling them, detention, things that are punishing students but don't really engage the students around why did this happen, what happened, how do we solve it, how do we repair the harm. And restorative justice, you know, there's many different tools. There are restorative justice circles, there's peer mediation, and many other ways in which there is, uh, when something happens, the instinct is to further engage both the people that perpetrated the harm and the people that were harmed in understanding sort of the root causes of why this happened, what was the impact on it on all parties involved, what needs to be done to repair the harm and to bring this back at the minimum to, you know, where things were before, if not to like sort of actually transforming our relationships as a whole. And so, you know, there's multiple tools that get used and and different people inclined to the different tools. But overall, what in our work we're trying to do is uh, push for the use of those types of practices inside of schools. And we do that by trying to change school discipline code policies so that they can be institutionalized inside of schools in New York City. I'll just add to that that, you know, the research is developing about the impacts of restorative justice in schools, but anecdotally, we are seeing that restorative justice is keeping young people in schools. It's providing an alternative to educators who otherwise would be suspending and expelling students, and it's actually improving academic achievement and outcomes for young people. And so it's a developing body of work, but it's an important tool to consider for ways to really build solidarity, to bridge divide between communities, and ensure that the person that is harmed and the one who has caused harm can sit together and really engage with one another. So thank you for sharing that. You know, Deepa, you and I may have been at DOJ together when Eric Holder started. No, we were not. (laughs) In any case, when he visited the Civil Rights Division... He spoke very strongly about the need to talk about race, and he called us a nation of cowards for not doing so, because we don't talk about race. That is changing of late, maybe not in the most productive way, but in your book, We Too Sing America, one of your recommendations is that we should be engaging in race talks. So what are race talks, and what is really the end goal? of solidarity and race talks? What do we hope to achieve? I think for those of us who are engaged in this work, talking about race is a necessity and Mm -hmm. we do it. But for most Americans, and I think that's where Attorney General Holder is right, most Americans shy away from it and instead favor either narratives about colorblindedness or being race neutral. Mm -hmm. You know, the issues are in the past. Mm -hmm. For example, I guess we have a black president, right? Or our focused on diversity and multiculturalism, which are starting points to talk about race, but they're not really the end points. They kind of cover over a lot of the problems. Mm -hmm. So what um, needs to happen is that we have more explicit conversations about race. And there are many organizations, advocates out there who talk about what some of those components are. Mm -hmm. And I gather a few of them in the book. Um, One of them is to very clearly talk about racism 
and not just race. Mm -hmm. And so that means talking about the roots of inequity in this country, which include, you know, being founded on white supremacy foundation, talking about the genocide of indigenous communities, displacement of black and brown communities, Islamophobia. So really being able to get into the ways in which racism has manifested itself Mm -hmm. in the United States. The second is to really talk about race in a broader context, that it is not just about race, but that there are multiple identities that we all have and bring to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you kind of looking at Kimberly Crenshaw's work on intersectionality, for example. So in the context of the communities that Fahad and I work with, we know that people who are Muslim, Arab, South Asian, or Sikh face discrimination or oppression, not Mm -hmm. only because of their racial identity, but also oftentimes because of their faith Mm -hmm. or their immigration status or their language proficiency, for example. And then also to be able to to get to your point about what how does this figure into solidarity, a third element is I often feel, and I know this is the case for me, that we don't really understand each other's histories of mm-hmm. racial oppression. We don't really read about it or know about it much in terms of our uh, school and education, but we also make assumptions about how people have faced racism or oppression. Mm-hmm. So I think important within the race talks are really an understanding of the strands of racism and other forms of oppression that have affected people. I often talk about kind of the points of entry Mm -hmm. that different people have into the United States. And the points of entry also include your racial consciousness. When were you first aware that you were different? And to start from a storytelling standpoint oftentimes allows us to have these race talks in a way that are more humane Mm -hmm. and more understanding of each other. Um, That's not to say that they're not messy. They are. They are messy. They're difficult. A lot of times it means that we have to just listen and not speak. They dredge up wounds. And I think that unless we actually have these conversations constantly at our dinner tables, in school, uh, college associations and forums, even at, you know, corporate professional associations, we need to actually make a point of having these conversations more often Mm -hmm. and not just react when something happens that's seen as a race flare up in the news. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about, you know, race plus, right? And the framing that I think we've gotten from Renku Sen and others Mm -hmm. who talk about race plus, we have to address certainly race and racism, but the other things that people carry, you know, I am not just black, I'm a black woman, I'm a mother, I am these, you know, these other things also. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, Fahad, the work that you all do at DRUM, you've talked a bit about some of the challenges in really generating productive dialogue in your community about those different points of intersection with race and with religion and with other things. So I wonder... Fahad, would you just share with us some of the challenges that you have faced in really trying to have those difficult conversations, especially with respect to the the intersections with race? So this is both a, a success and a challenge, particularly for communities that are already marginalized. In our case, this is particularly working class, South Asian, Muslim, Sikh communities. Talking about these things just kind of from a theoretical approach is not very useful. You know, whether it's a history lesson, whether it's, you know, larger discussions on race, it's just, you know, when people are dealing with day-to-day struggles just to survive, you know, it it often seems too abstract. And flip of that, what has been then useful is being able to draw out 
those histories, those understandings from the lived experiences of people. Mm-hmm. And so for us, uh, primarily through people in our own membership of people, you know, that have been targeted by, you know, NYPD surveillance or have loved ones that are, you know, uh, serving long sentences for it, sharing their stories and people hearing directly from them and, and seeing this person in flesh and blood. Uh, youths talking about being pushed out of school, youths talking about being bullied in school. I think that's one of the ways in which education, even around the issues that impact our own communities, you know, allows us to really engage in those conversations. Mm-hmm. In addition to, you know, just sort of solidarity across communities, there's a strong need for solidarity within the communities. Yeah. So, you know, on a lot of these issues, by and large, there's a large sense of denial or minimalization of these issues, even internal to our communities. Then I think it's a second level is then actually engaging with bases of organized people, either from other organizations or from other communities. So, you know, having people come and share their stories about being a public housing resident, about somebody that's been impacted by street policing as a young black person. And, you know, those conversations really open up doors to then, uh, after like sort of that personal engagement and relationship, I think after that is when we find that we're able to have much more larger conversations in a broader way that can delve into history, that can delve into sort of uh, larger uh, theoretical understandings. But really that personal building kind of needs to be a starting point, which is why, you know, uh, mass-based organizing is is both effective and is the most powerful tool for these sorts of conversations. Mm -hmm. Because you get to have those conversations where they're needed most, you know, within and across marginalized and oppressed communities who really have the largest stake in trying to transform the unjust systems that currently exist. When Farhad was speaking, it reminded me of a couple of ways in which I think these challenges have shown up Mm -hmm. um, because these conversations are not easy. And I think in specifically with the movement for Black Lives, for example, we have seen that Asian Americans and Arab Muslim South Asian communities are talking about, you know, for the first time, really having conversations, not only about the issues around why the movement for Black Lives has come together, Mm -hmm. but about addressing anti-Black racism within our own communities. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in in different ways. You know, for example, in um, Dearborn and in Detroit, Mm -hmm. the National Network on Arab American Communities has been holding these listening sessions between Black residents and Arab residents to really unearth what some of the roots of conflict have been between those communities, as well as how Arab and uh, communities there need to be addressing anti-Black racism within their own communities mm-hmm. um, instead of just kind of papering over that. Another example is that, you know, we have around the country Asian, Arab, South Asian merchants and small business owners in a lot of Black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So if you think of Baltimore, Ferguson, you know, some of these areas where we have seen uprisings, you do also see that there are small business owners, immigrants from you know, Asian, South Asian, Arab uh, nations. And so how are the conversations I think are beginning about how are these shop owners 
relating with their Black customers? How are they actually building the neighborhood up in a particular way? What Mm -hmm. is their connection to the Black residents? And so I think that all of these conversations are not, as Fahad said, in this abstract manner of, oh, this is important for solidarity for us to understand each other. But they really are, um, I think, on the ground, very important, critical conversations that, again, are also steep in conflict in many Mm -hmm. ways as well. Some of our own creation and some that has been created because of the system. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the redirection to lived experience and, you know, I really appreciate that, Fahad, when you say, you know, like we can have a theoretical conversation about race and racism and structural racism, and then there's no connection to how that really translates into daily lives and how people can live differently in going about their routines and so, you know, the examples that you've provided, Deepa, are really very tangible examples of how that's happening in the world and how really um, the killing of Michael Brown and the uprising in Ferguson, the killing of Freddie Gray, the uprising in Baltimore, you know, the, the killings that we see of unarmed Black people and then the uprise, the community uprising as an opportunity really for building solidarity, for demonstrating solidarity, which is work that you both have been doing for so many years. You know, these are really jump off points for that conversation and for really kind of a public display of of love between communities mm-hmm. and, you know, shared understanding and really bringing together those daily experiences, mm-hmm. which is so vitally important. So I, I appreciate that framing. You know, Deepa, one of the things that, speaking of, you know, lived experiences and and day-to-day life, one of the things that you've been leading has been the Solidarity Is campaign, which is a way to do that, right? To really kind of Mm -hmm. bring down the conversation or or interject the conversation about race into lived experiences, into the day-to-day workings of organizations that are in various communities around the country. So would you just share with us a little bit about what Solidarity Is is and <laughs> and how people can plug into it. Yeah, sure. So it's a hashtag, Solidarity Is. It's a campaign that seeks to explore both principles and practices of multiracial solidarity at the end of the day. And it started and because, um, you know, go, I'm going back to the first question you asked at the top of the podcast, it really started because it was clear that for Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities in particular, and the organizations that represented them at the national level, that there was really a silo of what those groups were doing and then the field of racial justice, which, you know, we think of more traditional racial justice organizations that are led by and focused on Black communities or Latino communities. And really the questions were, you know, when we have an issue like national security, Mm -hmm. how do we talk about that from the context of it being a justice issue as well? And how do we talk about it not just as a Muslim issue or a South Asian issue, but Mm -hmm. something that affects all communities of color because it does as we see it manifest on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really the impetus of this particular campaign. And the questions that I think we're trying to ask are, number one, what are the issues that cut across our communities? And secondly, what are some interventions that we can make, especially at a moment when there is a significant rise in racial anxiety because of changing demographics. Mm -hmm. There is a rise in xenophobia 
xenophobia and anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment. And there is, of course, a rise in Islamophobia Mm -hmm. in the post-9-11 context in particular. And so those are two of the questions that we're trying to ask with this campaign and the ways in which I think those answers are coming out. And it is really an open, shared campaign is one to identify and lift up best practices of transformative solidarity, Mm -hmm. where we're not just talking about this transactional, you know, I'll sign on to your letter if you come out to my press conference. Mm -hmm. But we're actually talking about, as you said earlier, Allison, how people's situations can change in their lives. And so lifting up the work that groups like DRUM are doing in Jackson Heights or Mm -hmm. Freedom Inc., which organizes Black and Hmong communities Mm -hmm. in Madison, Wisconsin, or Project South, which is focused on a Southern-based leadership and movement-building approach. What can we learn from those practices? Because people have been, and organizations have been doing this for quite some time. It's not new Mm -hmm. because we do live together. Mm -hmm. We're not siloed as we live. However, as we do this work, we often are. Mm -hmm. And so how do we lift up some of those best practices? And then secondly, what kinds of resources can we provide, whether it's in the form of language? So, you know, how can organizations articulate a solidarity statement? Mm -hmm. What are the values that go into that? Or for those conversations we just had about, how do we have a conversation about racial oppression Mm -hmm. and different points of entry? What are some resources we can provide for that? So if folks are interested, there's more information at www.solidarityis.org. And this Thursday, there's a third, fourth? Yeah, we're so the first, yeah, the first phase of this campaign is online Mm -hmm. and it spans from August 11th to September 11th to really mark some of the important anniversaries during that time. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the uprising in Ferguson, the fourth anniversary of the massacre in Oak Creek, Wisconsin at a Sikh temple, Mm -hmm. the Katrina anniversary and the 15 year anniversary of 9-11. So all kind of important moments that we could try to seek interventions around and look back at. So we've been holding these kind of Thursday Twitter town halls every Thursday at one o'clock Eastern Mm -hmm. that focus on lifting up different voices. So the one that's coming up next week will focus on the 15 year anniversary of 9-11. You know, the concept of transformative solidarity, that's a very powerful notion. You know, that is work, Fahad, that you have been doing. And I'm thinking a lot about Ferguson and the way that it really has highlighted the work, as Deepa said, that has been happening between and among communities to build solidarity, to really combat, you know, the myth of white supremacy and racial hierarchy. And so what do you see, Fahad, as as next in the movement work, in the social justice movement work? And, you know, especially thinking about the election, the presidential election that's coming down the pike and some of the rhetoric that we've heard from both sides about race lately, what are the opportunities there since there are ongoing conversations now about race? This election, uh, given both the polarization caused by it as well as sort of the frustration and disappointment uh, at the options, I think uh, what we're seeing is increasingly a growing awareness that, uh, you know, nobody is really going to come and solve our problems for us, at least two elections. So for us, uh, in our conversations internally within DRUM, but also with other organizations that are working within communities, um, it's uh, been conversations around, you know, what are, what are ways that we deepen our relationships and uh, start to build a more collective 
vision for the world that we want to see and, and fighting for it. I think this sort of shift in consciousness that really our future is in our hands, our future will be what we fight for and what we struggled for, is, you know, historically has always been a, uh, a major catalyst of large social change and transformative change wherever it's, it's happened in the past. You know, we're really looking at deepening those conversations, deepening those relationships, and building those relationships, which are not just in the context of a pretty horrible, uh, you know, sort of uh, political climate, but is really looking to build and to deepen those relationships for the long term. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a, a major component of that is around really continuing to go deeper into our communities, engaging more people, uh, having them feel that they themselves have the ability to impact how our society, how our world is shaped, and that they can, through struggle, impact the society that they're in. Deepa, I want to read an excerpt from your book, from the chapter about Ferguson, and this is in your book, We Too Sing America. And you're talking about that question of solidarity and what it looks like and how to do that well. But before I read the excerpt, I wonder if you would just share with us first the story of Suresh Bhai Patel, the 57-year-old grandfather. What happened to him in February 2015? So Mr. Patel um, is an Indian grandfather who was visiting his son in Madison, Alabama, and was on one occasion in February of 2015 taking an afternoon walk as he was used to do in his apartment complex, in the housing complex where they lived. And apparently what occurred is that two white police officers arrived on the scene to question Mr. Patel. They had been sent there because they had received a tip from a neighbor in that particular housing complex who had apparently said to the police department that there was a suspicious black guy walking around in the neighborhood and that he did not feel safe. And so these police officers uh, came to speak to Mr. Patel. They accosted him. They asked him several questions, which is all kind of recorded. And it's very clear if you read the transcript or watch the video Mm -hmm. of what occurred, that Mr. Patel is not fluent or proficient Mm -hmm. in English. The only thing he could say were the words India, and he kept pointing to where his son lived. Mm. And so he could not respond to any of the questions. One of the police officers decided to, for some reason or the other, take physical action against Mr. Patel, mm-hmm. um, assaulted him, threw him down into the ground. And as a result, Mr. Patel has been partially paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And the encounter, you know, really, again, I think opened up both the ways in which police brutality and police violence are occurring in this country to people of color, Mm -hmm. but also catalyzed many in the South Asian and Indian Mm -hmm. Asian American community to really be clear about why this is happening. You know, it was an anti-black tip that Mm -hmm. started it, Mm -hmm. but the impact was on an Indian immigrant man. Mm -hmm. And so the case has been tried several times by the federal government, by the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Department of Justice. Both times it has been tried 
it has been declared a mistrial. Mm. And I think what's so problematic about this particular case is that the issues around Mr. Patel's immigration status and his language proficiency mm-hmm. or lack thereof were really not at all mentioned or talked about. Mm. Instead, he was portrayed as a threat to the police officer, mm-hmm. you know, the same ways in which we have seen even black children yeah. be seen as threats yeah. to you know, police officers, mm-hmm. the same way, even though he couldn't speak English, he was an older man, he was an immigrant, he was seen as a threat mm-hmm. and actually warranted, you know, that sort of response, the assault from the police officer. Mm-hmm. So it's opened, I think, a lot of people's eyes in, in our communities about the breadth of police violence and also the unique ways in which it Im- impacts immigrants and people who are not proficient in English. So I want to read this paragraph from your book, We Too Sing America. And you say, the desire to build solidarity and alliances with Black communities, which must be fostered and prioritized at every turn, cannot be fulfilled at the expense of disregarding and discounting the ways in which racism and discriminatory treatment occur to non-Black community members. In the case of Suresh Bhai Patel, Framing his actual lived experiences of state violence only in the context of anti-Black racism discounts and marginalizes them. His encounter with law enforcement was sparked and catalyzed by anti-Black racism, but his nationality and his limited English ability were contributing factors as well. In standing against white supremacy and in solidarity with Black communities, South Asians and other communities of color must not erase their own experiences confronting racism in the United States. This is the time to be both supporters and active, respectful participants in the conversations and actions to end police brutality. As Dante Berry says, Black people need co-conspirators, not allies. Let's scheme together to all get free. And you're quoting there Dante Berry, who is the director of Million Hoodies for Justice. So, you know, my question to you is, how do we know when we've gotten there? How do we know when mm-hmm. we've when we've won? Yeah, well, I think, you know, broadly, even kind of more broadly than this particular instance, we will know we've won when our laws and our justice system actually reflect the racial realities and lived experiences of people, which they don't for any of us, especially in the context of police violence. Mm-hmm. We know that we've gotten there when we won, when people don't have to edit or censor parts of their identities. You know, when when someone who is not afraid to board a plane and speak in Arabic to their fellow passenger, when someone can wear a hijab openly on mm-hmm. a street, or a sick child can wear a turban and go to a place of worship and not worry that they might get attacked there. So when we can actually live who we are fully. And we also will know when we won, when we can actually create and be part of the decision-making about what happens in our neighborhoods and our schools, our workplaces, Mm -hmm. when they don't happen to us, but we're Mm co-creators and that's about power. Um, So I think those are some of the ways in which we will know when we won. Fahad, I want to give you the last word here to talk about on the path to winning. What have been some of the successes that you have seen in your work with DRUM? What have been the things that make you know that we're going to be all right? I think I think of two things. One, when we're talking about solidarity, it's really a a shift in consciousness to really seeing ourselves as one. And I think the example, we've seen that in our membership or in our relationships and alliances with other communities or organizations has been when people are willing to sacrifice their own short-term self-interest mm-hmm. 
for the purpose of building an alliance and a larger vision for the long term. And so, you know, when when undo- people that have been undocumented for like 20 odd years say that, you know, they don't accept a particular immigration proposal because it'll further harm communities on the border, even though that this person themselves may benefit from from that proposal. I think, you know, that sort of transformation is, is the first thing that I think is a very inspiring example. The second is, you know, when after having that process of really being willing to put our uh, own self-interest on the line, seeing people work together. It's, you know, when we see our youth members not only sort of marching and protesting with, but like actually building deep relationships with youth from other organizations or from other communities and having deep conversations around what is the world that we want to see and being able to engage in those discussions in a deeply organic way and and really build relationships that are meant to be for the long term. Mm -hmm. That sort of relationship building across our communities, every instance of that is what provides the uh, inspiration to continue the fight. I'm sad to end this conversation. (laughs) It's been a wonderful one. Thank you both so much for being on Schoolhouse today. It's been wonderful to have you. Deepa Iyer is an author, lawyer, activist. She's also a senior fellow at the Center for Social Inclusion. Her most recent work is a wonderful book, We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. Deepa, if folks want to find you online, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find out more about the book at www.deepaayer, that's my full name, .com. And Fahad Ahmed is the executive director of DRUM. Fahad, if folks want to reach you and DRUM and find you online, how can they do that? Our website is drumnyc, B-R-U-M-N-Y-C dot org. And our office phone number is 718-205-3436. You can also find us on the social media uh, platforms as well. And DRUM is a community partner of the Communities for Just Schools Fund. They are also a multi-generational organization that is led by its members, uh, and they are organizing South Asian people in New York City. Thank you all so much for joining Schoolhouse and for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.